We continue in this mini-series in the book of Philippians, these seven characteristics of the church. For those of you that are keeping track, this is number four. There are three more left after this. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's Word. Our text this morning is chapter 4, verses 5 through 7. But to remind us, I will begin at verse 1. Hear now the very Word of God. It is inerrant. It is sufficient. It is authoritative. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I treat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask this morning that you would teach us from your word, that you would teach us not only things we must learn and know, but things we must do, that you would show us the path that we are to walk in, a path that you have provided. We ask all of this in the precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We have been looking through these characteristics of a church. You recall the first thing that we looked at was that the church is to be Christ-focused. It is to be a Christ-focused church. And then secondly, we saw that the church is to be steadfast, standing together in the Lord, standing firmly in the Lord. And then the third thing that we saw last week is that the church is to be a peacemaking church. A place where in the midst of sin, in the midst of difficult circumstances, trials, God's people make peace with one another. God's people show God's peace to a watching world. Well, this morning we're going to look at what it is like to be a peaceful church. To be peaceful both in your own heart, but also together. You recall from last week we said that there is no such thing as the perfect church. You will not walk into a church and see everything in place. To see everyone perfectly attired. To see everyone perfectly kind, gentle, mannerly. But that doesn't mean that the church cannot be a place of peace. And you see, Paul tells us here this morning how we can be a church where there is peace. And so what I would like us to look at from these two verses this morning, these two and a half verses, is first the practice of peace. What does it mean to practice peace? What does it mean to have peace 
in our own lives. How do we get there? But then secondly, as we think about the practice of peace, we are overwhelmed. How do we do this? And so we look at the provision for peace that God has given. The provision of peace. And then after we have thought about practicing our peace and seen God's provision, we then rely upon His promise and we see the promise of peace in verse 7. So if you will look with me first here at the practice of peace, let us start actually a bit before verse 5. Because you'll remember, we have said this before in other uh, arenas, that the three most important things in interpreting the Bible are context, context, and context. And so verse 5 does not rise up out of a vacuum. It comes to us in the midst of Paul's encouragement to us. And the first thing that we need to remember is that Paul is telling us to have our minds prepared, to prepare our minds. And that means that we must be joyful and we must be reasonable. You see, if we are to know peace, we cannot forget what God has called us to in the previous verses. Oftentimes, that's what we like to do. We want the peace, but we want to ignore what God has said provides for the peace, how we are to practice it. And so I want you to remember that Paul has said, almost seemingly out of place, but I hope you're seeing that it's not, he has called upon us to rejoice in the Lord always. He says again, rejoice. So if we are going to have peace in our own lives and in our relationships, we must begin by being joyful, and by being joyful all the time, always. It's a pretty tall order, isn't it? That's not something we want to do all the time, is it? Perhaps if you're like me, there are certain times when if someone says something that is intended to and should bring you joy, you ignore it or you misconstrue it simply because you're enjoying, if I can use that word, being miserable for a moment or two. You don't want someone to break your bad mood. You're experiencing what we might refer to as righteous anger. Not. And so Paul says, first, if we are to practice peace, we must be joyful and we must be reasonable to others around us. You remember that word means being gentle, looking out for others. It doesn't just mean having good arguments. It means being reasonable in our attitude and in our being. This is how we prepare our minds. But secondly, we prepare our minds by remembering that Jesus Christ is present. Again, it seems out of place, but I hope we'll see the connection, that Paul says, the Lord is at hand. Now, why does he say this? He says it to remind us first that the Lord is near to save. In the midst of all our trials and our inability, God is near to save. He's also close at hand to watch over us, to guide us and protect us. But I think there's also something that Paul has in the back of his mind. Perhaps it's something he taught at Philippi when he founded the church. And it's found in Matthew chapter 6. If you'll turn with me there for a moment. The Lord is at hand, not just merely in some ethereal way that we think, oh, it would be good if we could feel the presence of the Lord. The Lord is not just at hand because we know that He is returning. No, the Lord is at hand because His Word is at hand. Chapter 6, beginning at verse 25. 
Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? And then he goes on to speak about how God has provided for the birds of the air and for the field of the grass. And in verse 30, he says, But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. You see, the word of God that comes from our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, is at hand for us. God calls us not to be anxious because the most basic things in the world are included in that passage. Food, drink, shelter, clothing. Right? When we have those things and God provides, it's a bit silly to be anxious about whether or not we'll get the latest video game system or the newest model car or the best landscape. You see, God has provided here, and we are to prepare our minds for thinking about this. And so if we ask ourselves, why should we not be anxious? Why is anxiety bad for us? We think about what anxiety does to us, and that causes us to prevent anxiety. We're called to practice peace by preventing anxiety. You see, because first and foremost, anxiety lies about peace. Think of anxiety as something whispering in your ear, saying, you know how to get peace? You need to be in complete control. You need to know everything that's happening. You need to have every single possible permutation of outcome already figured out. And if you don't, you won't have peace. So you better get busy. You better know everything. You better worry that you haven't left one stone unturned. You see, that's what anxiety tells you. But you see, this is like quicksand. You struggle to get rid of this anxiety, and you become what? More anxious. You lift, and you tug, and you kick, and you sink further and further. The more you find out, the more you worry there's more out there. And the more you find out, there's even more out there. And what do I do? And you are frozen. Have you ever had that feeling? Where you can't do anything? You walk around the house... I don't know. Someone walks up to you and says, Brother, sister, can I help? I don't know. I don't know. I just don't know what to do. Well, sit down. Calm your mind. Be prepared. Preventing anxiety is knowing that anxiety lies about peace. But in the same vein, anxiety destroys peace because that lie is a destructive lie of the enemy. The end of quicksand is death, not a sucker. Not a stake. It's death and destruction. And so anxiety not only lies about peace, it destroys our peace. And so Paul says, practice peace. And notice how broad this is. He says, we are not to be anxious about anything. Now, I don't know about you. I can't think of an exception to anything. Can you? 
Well, if you're sick, no. Well, if you don't have enough money, no. Well, if it's really, 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 really important, no. Do not be anxious about anything. You see, there is no situation in your life where anxiety helps you. Not one. That's hard, isn't it? Because that's where our hearts want to go immediately. To be anxious. To worry. If we are honest with ourselves, that is where our hearts tend to take us. Where sin tempts us. And so we realize that we can't kick against the quicksand. We don't know how to get out. So what do we do? You see, Paul has given us here what seems to be the second of impossible tasks. Paul, lighten up with the preaching. You're telling me first I have to rejoice always, and now I can't be anxious ever. Please, give me something I can shoot for. Let me have some encouragement. But you see, the reason that Paul can lay these tasks in front of us is because we are not called to do them in our own strength. You see, the practice of peace is linked inextricably to the provision of peace. You see, Paul says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And you see, the first provision for peace is patience. See, this is going to be an easy outline to remember. There's a lot of P's. Patience. You see, the language that Paul uses here, do not be anxious, is a command plus a negative. He actually says, be anxious about nothing. That command plus a negative assumes that the Philippians had been anxious. And that should be an encouragement. You see here this good church of Philippi where they had been steeped in the truth, where they supported Paul. This healthy church had people that were anxious. That should make you and me feel better about our humanity. That God looks out for us. That the people of God really are the same everywhere. That sin is around the corner. The discouragement is at the door. And so Paul says, you must be patient. You must not put your own things forward. Do you remember what our Lord said in that passage of Matthew 6? He said, seek first what? The kingdom of God. Seek first the kingdom of God. That requires patience, doesn't it? You experience this with your kids. You may go out and play with your friend... But first, clean your room. You may eat dessert, but first, finish what's on your plate. Right? That requires patience, doesn't it, kids? Not only the work and cleaning the room, but i got to get out. Come on. The game's already started. They're out there throwing the ball around already. You need patience. But you see, that's what our lives are to be like. Lives of patience, seeking first God and His kingdom. And when we do that, our anxiety fades into the background. We worry a bit less about our 401k. We have a little bit less fear about our children. We have a little bit less fear about our own lives. Because we're seeking first the kingdom of God. You see, prayer 
which we're going to talk about in a second, involves a patient spreading out of our needs before God. A detailing of the situation and the fears. It's what Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 7. He says, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. That's patience. You gather up your cares and you patiently lay them all out one after the other. You may have heard me say to you that the way that we are called to repent is to repent of particular sins particularly. Not just throw up generalities. The way we are to pray to calm our own hearts is not just prayers like, God help me get through the day. But to lay out our concerns before God. Lord, I need your help today because I don't know how I'm going to make it through this meeting I'm not prepared for. And my wife's going to the doctor, and while I'm in the meeting, I'm going to be concerned about what the results are going to be. I've got this big test today, God, and I'm not sure I'm ready. Lay out our cares patiently before God. And that, of course, takes us to the next provision for peace, which is prayer itself. And we need to correct our own thinking, I think, sometimes about prayer. You see, to the world, and sometimes we can be convinced of this, prayer is about despair. Prayer is the thing of last resort we do. We've tried everything else under the sun, realize we can't do anything. Well, I guess I could try prayer. Right? That's how the world views prayer. It's desperation. It's already over. The game is over. No. Prayer is not about despair, but about confidence. Coming to the Lord in confidence. It is not a last resort, but it is a submitting all of our hopes, all of our fears before God and His purpose in our life. And you see, Paul uses these wonderful, expansive words again. Paul knows what he's doing when he's preaching. He knows that we want to get out. And so he says, we are to do this in everything. And that doesn't just mean all the time. It's a little bit more specific than that. Paul says elsewhere we're to pray without ceasing. And you may recall that doesn't mean we're to walk through life muttering prayers under our breath. What it means is in every single situation, in every circumstance, prayer is the answer. There is no circumstance where prayer is inappropriate. There is no circumstance where prayer is not the answer or at least part of the answer. You see, prayer in everything is the counterpart to not worrying about anything. They're expansive words. One commentator puts it this way in a very pithy quote. The way to be anxious about nothing is to be prayerful about everything. That really sums it up. And you may ask yourself then, though, what does this mean, though? By prayer and supplications, let my requests be made known to God. Well, you, you just read Matthew 6, and, and our Lord says, Jesus says that God already knows what we need. So why do we need to tell him? Is this some kind of magic formula? If we don't say, Mother, may I? God won't answer our prayers. God won't help us. No. You see, when we lay out our troubles before him, we show our dependence on him to ourselves. And we get an assurance that he knows. You see, prayer really is more about us than about God. It's more about our relationship with the Lord than about the request itself 
You see, that is laid out that we might know He is our God, that we might assure ourselves that He cares for us. And this kills anxiety. You see, anxiety cannot exist in an atmosphere of prayer. It cannot. Many of you are in the energy industry. Perhaps you've even worked in the field. And perhaps you have seen or heard or read about jet fuel fires or oil slick-based fires, the kind of fires that you cannot put out with water because when you throw water on the fire, it expands or it splashes or it becomes more violent. And you know what they do to put these kinds of fires out? They pump large amounts of carbon dioxide into the area. Because fire, no matter how fierce, no matter how strong, no matter how destructive, cannot exist without oxygen. You see, prayer is the carbon dioxide in your life. Anxiety cannot exist. It cannot flourish where we lay out our prayers before God. You see, prayer does this by answering the anxious question, how can I cope with what I've been given? And the answer is, you can cope with what you've been given because God has a purpose, because God has provided, because God cares for you. This is one of the main provisions that we have for peace. But it's not the only one. It's not just prayer that we have. We also have praise. Notice that Paul says, not just prayer and not just supplication, not just requests, but he says this little phrase, with thanksgiving. Now, notice that. He says we are to do this by prayer and by supplication, and we are to let our requests be made known, and we are to do this in the context of thanksgiving. We are to do it with thanksgivings. Now, if you have ever offered up prayer for a serious situation in your life, you know how difficult the challenge to thanksgiving is, don't you? When you're in the midst of praying that you don't lose your job or that you find a new one after you've lost one, the last thing that comes to your mind is thanksgiving. You're focused on your need. You're focused on the present. You're focused on your concern. And you see what praise is, it is the past dimension of prayer. Praise is what gives us confidence in the present because we see God's work in the past and they work together. Lord, I don't know how we're going to meet the mortgage bill this month, but I give you praise that four years ago when I didn't think we were going to be able to make that move and I didn't think we would ever make friends and I didn't think my children would grow up strong in the Lord, I see what you've done. And I give you thanksgiving for that. I praise you, O oh Lord. Please help me now like you did then. You see, it's the past dimension of prayer. It's after this fashion. It doesn't matter whether you're 6 or 66. When you are faced with a difficult task, whether it's running a two-minute drill in a football game, fixing something that is broken in your house that is leaking water everywhere, whether it is a financial challenge. What makes that incident more bearable and what makes you more focused 
is that little saying, well, I've been here before. Right? When you've experienced it, when you know the truth, it makes it easier to deal in the present. It's one of the reasons why in sports, the greatest clutch players are the ones who have been there. It's why they make such a big deal about those who don't have playoff experience. But you see, that's true in our lives as well. When we rehearse what God has done, we have this experience that we've been here before, and so has God. And God has preserved us. And it gives us confidence and boldness. There's another aspect, too, to thanksgiving. You see, we are called to render thanksgiving. And if you don't give God thanksgiving for what He has done, you must check your heart. Because, you see, characteristic of those who do not know God, Characteristic for those who rebel against God are those who receive His good things and absolutely refuse to give Him thanks. That's the definition of an unbeliever in Romans 1. And so maybe if perhaps, even as I'm speaking this morning, you're going through your mind trying to think about if you've ever given thanks for all of the things that God has done to you. Healthy children. A life of happiness. A good job intelligence, physical ability, then I call upon you this morning to give Him thanks, to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, to cast all your cares upon Him, to know that the only hope you have is believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have that worry and that anxiety, if you know that there's a hole of thanksgiving in your heart, do not despair. Now is the day of salvation. It is not too late The scripture calls you now to believe upon God, to believe upon His Son, and to to close with Him. You see, thanksgiving, thankfulness, shows that we are prepared to surrender to God's will wherever or whenever or whatever it is. It answers the worrying question, why me? With the answer, because God has a purpose. Because God is sovereign. This is the provision of peace. We've seen how we are to practice peace. And then we've seen the provision of peace. And now we are to hold on to the promise of peace. We see that in two things. First, protection that comes from God. And then secondly, we see it in the presence of God in our midst. What do we mean when we say protection that comes from God? We mean first that the peace of God is something that comes from God. If you look with me here at verse 7, this little word here in the scripture, and. Now, oftentimes I've spoken to you about these frameable verses, these cross-stitch verses that we put up on our walls to encourage us, and that's a good thing. But remember, the most important three things in interpreting the Bible, is context. And we don't want to take this verse 7 out of its context and make it some kind of pithy saying that talks just about warm fuzzies that we have. No, it comes in the context of a life that is steeped in prayer, of a life that rejoices, 
of a life that is in the midst of conflict and challenges. And you see, the and here is not just, oh, by the way, let me tell you about peace. It is if you bring your cares to God, if you know that He is sovereign, if you know He has a purpose in your life, if you know these things, you will have peace. This is the result of prayer. This is the result of thanksgiving. We might even put up a mathematical-like formula. Prayer plus praise equals peace. You see, that is how we get the peace of God. And it is a specific and a certain promise. And I want you to see something that is missing here, that is critical. Do you notice what's missing? The answer to the prayers. You notice Paul doesn't talk about that at all. He says we're to cast our cares. In everything we're to bring prayer and thanksgiving. And he doesn't say, and you will get the answer you need, and then you will have peace. You see, if we are looking for peace, only if we get the answers we want, we're going to be looking an awfully long time. Because we haven't submitted to God. We've ruined the purpose of prayer. We've just said that prayer is about laying out our cares before God and knowing that He is in charge, knowing that He is sovereign, knowing that He will provide. And if that is only so that my will can be done, I will never have peace. Because five minutes later, I will think I need something else. And anxiety will come upon me. You see, peace comes regardless of whether or not the requests are granted. It is the praying that matters, not the type of answer. And this peace of God touches our entire lives. It is something that the world cannot explain away. It is one of the greatest tools for evangelism you have in your toolkit. To trust upon God. When others look and they say, how in the world can you be so calm? I know the end of the story. I know my Lord. It is a peace that comes over our entire lives. This concept of peace is not just the absence of fighting. It is a wholeness. It is a completeness. It is that Hebrew word that you have heard before, shalom. Encompasses all of our being. And so you see, Paul does this for a very practical fashion. It's as if he's walking up to Euodia and Syntyche and saying, do you possibly think God could give you the kind of peace that would master your anxiety, that would put away worry from you, and it would not fix your relationships? Do you possibly think God's peace could be kept inside you and not spill out over into your relationships? You see, this peace isn't just some kind of warm, content feeling we have inside. There is that kind of peace and calm that comes, but it never stays there. It is not just interior. It spreads out to our families, to our friends, to our church, to our neighborhoods. This is the peace of God. And it is a peace that passes all understanding. Now, this is something that really throws us for a loop. Paul wants us to know something that's unknowable. He wants us to have something we can't understand. What does that mean? Is it some kind of irrationality? Some kind of peace that doesn't make any sense at all? No, I don't think so. It surpasses all understanding or all knowing because it transcends beyond even what we can ask. 
You see, we see our anxieties, and so we pray for things that we believe will resolve that. And what Paul says is, the peace that you will get goes beyond that. You won't even have thought of all of the things that God will affect your life in. It transcends rationality. It's not irrational, but it goes beyond rationality. It goes beyond the limits of what we think and expect. It is experienced where we least expect it. It is a type of peace that we do not know otherwise outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is unique. And this peace that is beyond all understanding guards our hearts and our minds. You see, this peace is not just warm and fuzzy. You remember what happens to those who live in fuzzy land? They don't grow. Peace is not for fuzzy land. You see, God's peace is active and it is vigorous. It shows the power of God who is the one who makes peace. Now, I want you to think about this. Paul is speaking to a town that is a military town. You remember this. We spoke about the Philippians being veterans. And he says the peace of God is like a military garrison protecting your heart and protecting your mind. This is like, well, let's use this example and change it a bit. It would be like a UN peacekeeping force that actually worked. Maybe they wouldn't wear blue helmets. Maybe they would wear green helmets. They would be there. This, this piece puts up a hedge, a fence, a protection around your heart where Satan would seek to get in and to disrupt your peace and to disrupt your life and to make you anxious. And the peace of God doesn't just exist in you. It protects you. And when your mind would wander and doubt the word of God, that peace comes around your mind and it protects it like a military garrison. This is the peace of God. Finally, the promise of peace comes in the presence of God. It's not just that God gives us peace. He is peace. You see, the focus here is upon God himself the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds. And this peace comes from, if we look down in verse 9, the God of peace, who is with us. You see, when Paul says that we are to take our request to God, he uses a very interesting phrase. He uses a prepositional phrase, like if you bring a cup to someone, or you drive a car to the store. He's saying that God is near to us and God is in relationship to us and God wants to be close to us. It's not just a handing off of prayers, sending them up gigantic pneumatic tubes in the sky. It is knowing that God is there and with us. And this shouldn't surprise us because the Lord Jesus Christ is described in Ephesians 2, verse 14, as our peace. God himself is our peace. So what do we see then this morning? We see that we need to be at peace. We need to know God's peace. And you see, the world tries to get peace by emptying their minds. read this this week in a commentator, and I said, this is so good, I've got to steal this. The world tries to get peace by emptying their minds. 
folding your arms and chanting Om. Not thinking about what's going on about you. Can't get peace that way. You can get a sore throat. You get knees that hurt, but you can't get peace. You see, you must actually properly fill your mind. Fill it with the promises of God. Fill it with reminders of His past works to you. Reminders of His care. Fill your mind with what we're going to look at next week in verses 8 and 9. If your mind is properly filled and you are focused upon the Lord, then you will have peace. You will have peace in your heart. You will have peace in your family. Peace in relationships. Most importantly, you will have peace with God. 